following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Welcome to Where the Big Boys Play. Welcome to a very special bonus episode of 20 Years of Nitro. Now, we are in the midst of preparing for you our big Hog Wild 1996 episode. Uh, we're planning on recording and releasing that very soon. Uh, but I had the opportunity recently to record a very special bit of audio that I'm uh, just so excited to share with you guys today. And that is an interview with former WCW feature producer Neil Pruitt. Uh, we'll talk many things with Neil over the next hour, uh, how he got involved with World Championship Wrestling, uh, some of the personalities he worked with, some of the people he worked for, including Eric Bischoff, his thoughts when Eric Bischoff sort of rose to power, uh, his thoughts when Nitro got started. We talk about Hog Wild uh, specifically, and of course we talk about uh, Neil's work that went into producing those NWO uh, famous advertisements, paid advertisements, that have been a real staple of the Nitros that we've been watching lately. Uh, so I won't do much in the way of introduction um, because we really just kind of cover everything in the interview, but um, I think you guys will enjoy it. It was a real, real treat. Neil was just great to deal with, so professional, very polite. Um, he even went out of his way. He recorded uh, on his own. He recorded on his end and then sent me that file so that I could use a more professional-sounding audio for his track rather than you know my recording, which would have sounded like him uh, over the phone. So uh, just... Really great guy, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And let's go straight to that interview. All right, well, welcome to a very special bonus episode of 20 Years of Nitro, our first ever uh, interview segment on the show, and we have got quite a whopper of a guest for you today. Uh, our guest is a freelance video producer whose work has been featured all over the world on outlets such as NBC, ABC, CNN, and ESPN, he worked for Turner Broadcasting for over a decade and was a feature producer for World Championship Wrestling. He is the co-host of the Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast. And probably most importantly to you guys, uh, our fans, he is the voice of the New World Order. Please welcome to the show, Neil Pruitt. Hey there, everybody. Neil, how are you doing this evening? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing excellent. It is just such a, a thrill to be talking to someone that was there, that was able to see so many of the things that we've talked about and dissected on the show firsthand, and, and not only was there, but really had a hand in uh, crafting those from a production and creative standpoint. So just thank you very much for taking the time to come on and talk to us today. Not a problem. I was so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and got to do a lot of fun things in my career, and WCW is definitely one of the highlights of it all. Now, I want to pick up a thread that I, I, I've listened to a few episodes of your show. I, I kind of pick and choose the things that are relevant to where we're at in our timeline, which is right now around August of 1996. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that I think I picked up in, in I, your first episode is, am I correct in that before working uh, with World Championship Wrestling, were you, were you not a fan of wrestling or not just too familiar with it? That's right. I really wasn't a big fan. Actually, when I was in college... In the mid-80s, now I'm showing how old I really am, <laughs> I would go to look for something on, like, on Saturday evening, like, real late at night, and I would see WWE, or WWF at the time, come on the Saturday Night Live spot. I hated that. I mean, I was like, <laughs> what the heck, man? I don't want to see wrestling. I want to see some funny Saturday Night Live stuff. Anyway, during that time, though, I did get to appreciate 
some of the, I guess, skits and some of the stunts that they used to pull. Like I enjoyed Piper's Pit, and I got to see Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage go at it a little bit uh, in the Miss Elizabeth wedding that they had. And so I, I liked the pageantry of it all, and I was a fan of that, but really didn't watch it on a consistent basis, no. But I got to learn to really appreciate what the guys did for a living and how hard they worked and, you know, stayed in the business for many years and really enjoyed myself. Uh, I had a great start, though. I was first worked in World Cup Wrestling. Actually, it was my first paid event and got to meet some people there and then moved on to doing some local wrestling type shows with The Flame, The Assassin, Joe Hamilton, who I talk about oftentimes on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. He's my mentor and got me in the business and showed me a lot of how the business should work and how you should act and how you should treat others. And I'm so appreciative to this day and good friends with Jody. And I've been doing it for a long, long time. So I've, I've been very fortunate. When you first joined uh, Turner Broadcasting, was that specifically to work on World Championship Wrestling? That's right. I had actually, when I was 25, I used to direct a nightly sports show. So the one of the gentlemen that I worked with, Christopher Huber, he was a producer with WCW later after that show kind of collapsed. And he asked me, hey, Neil, did you ever think about wanting to do audio for World Championship Wrestling interviews? And I'm like, heck yeah, let's do it. I'd never run audio before really in that situation. <laughs> But I knew I could do it. <laughs> yeah. So sitting sitting in that room, listening to the interviews, I kind of started going, you know, these guys really need to say something different. Some of them just really didn't have a good rap down. So some of them I would actually write lines and start giving them to them. And some of the announcers kind of got wind of this and I guess appreciated some of my comments that I made. And I really didn't have anything to compare to because I just wanted to hear some good banter. And I remember uh, talking to some of the announcers that maybe some of the ways that I possibly shouldn't have by telling them, you know, if it were me, I would do it like this. Or I would do something different. So some of them even started wanting me to critique them. So that's kind of how I got my start and this form of wrestling at WCW. But I had actually directed a night, uh, directed a weekly sports show before that and excuse me a weekly wrestling show as well so I was familiar with the product before I ever got there which made it simple for me that's kind of a pleasant surprise I think for a lot of the stories that or the way that uh, you know the fans imagine things backstage I would I would think that someone running the audio would maybe be intimidated to be giving some of these guys notes and then if they receive notes uh, a wrestler being receptive to that that's that's a Sort of a pleasant surprise, I guess, from my perspective. Was there anyone who pushed back on that at all? Not really, because you kind of got to take the tactful approach. You know, you just you don't don't do it in front of everybody. You just kind of walk out in the hall and go, you know, dude, uh, I don't know. I've been listening to your stuff. You know, I think it's pretty good, but this might be able to help you. So go ahead. You know, if you can use some of this stuff, fine. If you don't, no big deal. So that's kind of the friendship approach I took to it. And since I had already directed the nightly sports show. I was familiar with being around top athletes like Pete Rose, Tommy Lasorda, um, just any professional athlete you can name. We, at the time, we probably did some kind of interview with them. Like Mike Tuchesky, if 
you know, Duke's coach or Bobby Cremins or Vince Dooley, whoever. We would interview all of them. So I was really never intimidated by anybody anyway. So going to the wrestling realm really didn't affect me much either. So I wasn't really afraid of anybody. And, you know, I, I took it as the approach of, I'm going to help you out if you'll let me. So that's what I did. And so that's how the uh, original, the audio gig kind of developed into more of a producer role? That's right. I said, you know, hey, I appreciate you liking my audio because what I did was I actually reworked the whole system. So after I got there for a little bit and was kind of comfortable in the interview room, I really saw a flaw in the system. The producers would come up to me of whatever show, whether it be worldwide or the main the main event or WCW Saturday Night, and they go, you know, where are my tapes at? And at first, when I saw their system, they were scattered all over the place. So I'm like, I can fix this pretty easily. So what I did was, I had a list of tapes. Like one had WCW Saturday Night on it. The next one had WCW Worldwide. The other one might have Power Hour, Power Hour Canada, whatever, or TBS or something like that. So I think we had maybe five or six tapes. So when somebody like Sting would walk into the room... I would have looked through all the interviews, and one time at center stage, we did probably about 100, but one time in Gainesville, we did like 200. So not all of them were two-minute interviews, but some were just 10-second bumpers. But we really had the system honed down to where we could do stuff quickly. So what I would do is I would see the next person that's going to be up, like just like you're batting in baseball. You have somebody that's batting. They're in doing their interviews. The next person is on deck. That's the person who's going to go next. And then there's somebody in the door that's going to be the next person down the line. Sure. So while we're doing the interviews, I would develop a system of whoever's coming up next. So Sting came up. I knew that Sting had to be with, say, say he had to uh, be on an interview opposing Ric Flair. So I would tell him that. Or if he was in a tag team partnership, say, with the Bull British Bulldog or somebody... I would say, okay, Bulldog's got to come in and do an interview with Sting. And then, okay, Bulldog, you go out, Sting, stay there. Now you got to do an interview with the tag team partner you're going to have in New York or somewhere like that. So I was able to really hone that system down. I went back to the studio, and they said, Neil, where's our interviews? I go, what show do you do? They said, well, I do WCW Saturday Night. I said, well, here's your interviews. They go, that's it? I said, yeah. They go, just one tape? I just, I said, yeah, just one tape. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> so that really put me in a good light right away, being able to help their system out and make it run more efficiently so quickly. So they liked that right off the bat. And that then led me to saying, look, I'm really not an audio person. <laughs> I said, I'm a package producer. I make videos that last two and three minutes history packages, interviews, music videos, stuff like that. So then they gave me a try. I did a 1-900 number commercial, and I was on my way to producing. It was terrific. Now, could you kind of break down, uh, and you went into it a little bit there, talking about putting those packages together, but uh, what are kind of the daily responsibilities of, of a television producer, uh, maybe specifically working kind of in the wrestling arena? Well, depending on what your assignment was and depending on what you had to do that day and obviously what they kind of dreamed up that minute. Sometime you would have to make an interview look like CNN, for instance. So 
I would have to figure out, okay, if we wanted to make it look like CNN and we want Ric Flair to be on one side and Ricky Steamboat be on the other, we're going to have to have two cameras in two separate rooms and we're going to have to have two different backgrounds. So one could be chroma key green. The other one could be uh, office setting or something. So Ricky Steamboat, he can sit out in the lobby. Ric Flair can sit in the studio. And now we can have something that looks like CNN where we're in two different areas. So it's one of those things where you just kind of had to be ready to do whatever. And it could be a music video one day and getting ready for that to figuring out how to do commercial to doing interviews on the road or a special assignment where you go out to Chicago, say, and do leads for WGN. So it was a variety of things that you had to do, and sometimes on a whim. I remember one time I was on my way to work. I had just finished up a package that I was working on. I think I left at 5 a.m., and it was 9.30. And they're calling me like, Neil, where are you? I'm like, didn't you see when I you know, did my last edit? I left there at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> they go, no, we're not complaining that you're not here yet. We just want to know where you are exactly. I said, well, you know, I'm on my way to work. I'm probably about halfway there. They go, well, and I said, why? They go, we don't want you to come in. I said, well, what do you want me to do? They said, we need you to go to Los Angeles. Your ticket's at the desk at the Delta counter. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I flew out to L.A. and was on the, the Tonight Show. Hogan was supposed to be on the Tonight Show. So we went out there hoping that we'd get footage of him backstage and so forth, but that never happened, but things like that would pop up and you just had to go. So it was very exciting and you never knew what you're going to do next. I loved it. <laughs> I thrived on it. So uh, you're producing, you know, you're working on things that are going to be on upcoming shows. Now, when it comes to the day of a show, um, either a syndicated show like a Saturday night or a worldwide, are there specific responsibilities you have while the show is actually uh, in you know active production, or is everything that you're doing kind of ahead of time, uh, or after the footage is filmed, kind of assembling it, editing it, that kind of thing? Well, that's a really good question. The event day would often be something where we'd get there at say ten o'clock in the morning, and then we'd set up some equipment for the NWO, say backstage. And I remember like one time we were in. Uh, some pig barn somewhere. That's no joke. <laughs> it was in the middle of Wyoming or somewhere. It was, uh, I think it was after one of the Sturges, actually. Yeah, I think the week after Hogwild 1996, you guys were from Cody, Wyoming. So that would probably line up there. Cody, Wyoming. Yeah. So I remember one place we went, I said, okay, well, where are we going to do this NWO birthday party thing that I'm supposed to do? So David Crockett, he was the person in charge of putting together all those locations and did a great job at it. But sometimes it was just out of rooms. I mean, we just didn't have space to do things sometimes, especially in the smaller venues. Mm -hmm. So we just, hap we just happened to be beside some place that they showed horses or something. So I go, I guess it'll work. You know, it, we can just kind of make it look, we can let, let the light fall off and make it look like we're in a black room or something. So it won't really look so much like we're in a horse stable. <laughs> so... I said that'll work, and we, we're gonna we're gonna have like um, I don't know these little sparklers and things like that anyway. So you know it wasn't gonna be too bad. So we got in there though, and it smelled like horse crap for real. I mean it was nasty. <laughs> so <laughs> obviously it was just gonna get worse as time went on. So I'm like, 
okay, I, I sent one of our assistants out to go get like about 20 of these renews it's <laughs> those uh, air fresheners. So I remember we set a ring of air fresheners around <laughs> where we shot that. So you never see them on camera, but it just toned down the smell of the place. So you never, you never knew what you're going to get into. And sometimes really BS for real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what year was it that you started up with WCW? Actually, I started in 1990. I believe the first pay-per-view I was at was Starcade, which was in St. Louis at the Keel Auditorium. And I believe it was the last event there. And that used to be like one of the great places for wrestling because they were part of the National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA. And one of the decision makers, that was his territory. Mm -hmm. I remember in St. Louis. So that was a big deal for a lot of people. So that would be uh, during the administration of Jim Hurd. Is that right? Unfortunately so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jim Hurd, he was a trip. Um, I remember one time, I there's this is a story I hadn't told on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. But I'll let it go here first. What the heck? <laughs> I remember Dusty Rhodes and I were in Phoenix. I think it was Duel in the Desert or something. They didn't want to call it Wrestle War because the Iraq War was going on. I can't remember exactly what – it was a pay-per-view, though. I do remember that. And I think it was Phoenix. So we're sitting outside tossing out a couple cold ones. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jim Hurd's limousine pulls up. <laughs> he gets out at the curb. Trips over, <laughs> trips over the curb and falls into the plant. <laughs> Dusty goes, hey, Wildcat, <laughs> falling into the plant, are you? Come on over here. <laughs> so that's how crazy uh, Mr. Hurd could be even. <laughs> it was wild times. Yeah, Mr. Hurd, he really never brought much to the table, I didn't think. He was kind of an old grouch. And he acted like, oh, yeah, I run every camera there is. He'd say stupid stuff like that, and you're like, Okay, if you're dumb enough to say that, you're really dumb. <laughs> because nobody, <laughs> not any of us who had been on in television for a long, long time had ever done that. So, And you never will because it's impossible. <laughs> so he was a trip, literally a trip on, in Phoenix. After him was another uh, executive from outside the world of wrestling, Kip Fry. What was what was Kip Fry like as a, as a boss? I never got it. I never understood why they ever chose Kip Fry either. I remember a weird thing about him, which was really stupid. So one of my assignments was to, and I got some good ones for sure, was to do the NWA Tag Team Tournament that I believe uh, Clash of the Champions is where it ended up. And we were going to be acting as if we had a whole lot of press there. We did this often. <laughs> sure. Oh, yeah. We never have legit press cover our stuff, of course. But we made it look like that. So all the office people who were on the inside, they would wear suits. And you know, a lot of them look pretty darn good on, on camera. They'd dress up. And they'd get their pads out like they were newspaper reporters. And some of them, we'd give them microphones. And we'd act like they were recording it for their station. And we'd have these lights that we'd set off to make it look like there were a bunch of flash bulbs going off from different cameras back in the day. And I walked in there. And I'm getting ready to set up my camera. <laughs> Actually, Bill Tinsley was going to be running the camera, of course. But I think we had two or three cameras. Jim Ross was going to be the main talent to uh, announce all these this tag team tournament and all these people from all over the world coming to wrestle. Mm -hmm. And Kip Fry goes, uh, wouldn't we want to kind of 
offset the camera and make sure it's not perfectly center to make it look like, you know, there's a lot of cameras here. I was like, we're putting on the event. (laughs) (laughs) We are sponsoring the event. She would have the best location of all, period, before anybody else even gotten anywhere near the building. I was like, I don't think that'd be a good idea. And I was like, wow, dude, come on. (laughs) So that was one of my first thoughts about Kip Fry. I mean, just that meeting right there, I'm like, wow, that's just odd. And I I don't think he knew a thing about television. I think he was in the circus or he he was, which is pretty close to wrestling, or he was in some kind of promotion. It was him or Jim Hurd, and I can't remember for the life of me which one. One of them came from Pizza Hut was, was their primary background. Wow, Pizza Hut, darn yeah, that was right. that was the executive experience they built their resume on. <laughs> so after Kip Fry is gone, then you've got a real character in uh, Bill Watts. What was what was it like working for Bill Watts? I like Eric Watts. His son's a nice guy. Sure, he's a good kid. Well, back he's not a kid anymore, obviously, but he was then. Mm-hmm. Bill Watts, he was just a brash kind of jerk. I thought. I mean, he was really. Hard nose and, you know, always trying to be the top big guy and nasty to people. And I don't know. I just never really got into him either. <laughs> we had a we had a series of a uh, few people that run running the place. You're going like, excuse me, why are you running this again? And it was very dysfunctional. I mean, many times over, those production people would look at each other like, why don't they just do it like this, you know, or why don't, but they never ask us. Right. So, yeah, at the. At the beginning, it was kind of a little bit bitter, I guess. We weren't really in the age of, you know, Nitro making it done closer to right. <laughs> mm-hmm. We were just kind of going off of whims of other people and that didn't really know what they were doing in the business, I didn't think. And that was kind of, that was kind of bothersome. I mean, you did have, Bill Watts had, he'd done it, you know, many times over. And I believe in Dallas and a few other places like that. He had, you know, some set success. Maybe with the USWA, I'm not sure exactly what they were calling him back then. But, you know, he did have some booking uh, um, lores that he could talk about, and he had some successes there. But, I don't know, when you go so hard-nosed like that, he really didn't seem like a business person, you know, that should be running a company at that level. And we weren't even really taken off at the time. So, yeah, I just I never got some of their choices. But then again, you know... Had I been in that position, I guess you, you go with people that you normally think had been fairly successful in the past. So maybe they found success in each one of these people that I didn't know about. Well, it's kind of an interesting transition because, you know, you, you mentioned sort of past experience. The next after Bill Watts, uh, and really as we kind of get into what uh, what our podcast is focused on, which is sort of the Nitro era, after Bill Watts, they hand the company over to the you know, relatively young and relatively inexperienced hands of Eric Bischoff, uh, who at that point was really just like a third string announcer for the company. Do you remember kind of what the reaction was amongst the production crew of having Eric rise from being kind of a low level, um, you know, talent on the show to actually running the entire thing as the executive vice president? I think some of them were very surprised. I wasn't all that surprised. I knew Eric and kind of helped him when he was the third string announcer. Eric had a heck of a work ethic. He busted his butt every day. When he came into work, man, he was ready to work. And he had a bunch of drive, and he had great determination. 
And Eric had some terrific ideas. I got to say that. I mean, he really did. And I think they had seen the last three go through the the mail there and just really weren't all that appreciative. So at least Eric had been around long enough to see kind of how we did things in production. So that might have been to our advantage that he saw how much work it did take to get things done. And he saw some people that were talented that maybe other people didn't just because he saw it from a different angle altogether. He wasn't just hanging up in a 13 floor office. He was actually down in production on CNN center um, on the ground floor. So I think that could have been an advantage. I don't know that we were all that shocked about it. I really wasn't because like I said, I think Eric had a great work ethic and he had a lot of good ideas. So he comes on board and one of his first kind of big, bold moves is to sign Hulk Hogan. Uh, of course, then and probably still to this day, the the biggest wrestler uh, in history. Um, if you're just kind of going by name recognition and, and celebrity value, what did it feel like in the company? Did it really feel like things were about to kind of take off with the acquisition of, of Hogan to the ranks? Oh, yeah, I definitely have to say so. Yes. I mean, when you have someone of that magnitude that had done so much in the business, you know, such an icon name to the business. Yeah, I think everybody's pretty excited about the whole thing. I know I was, for sure. Because I had actually directed a show called Superstars of Wrestling. This was right after the show that I directed, the sports show. And it had like, I don't know, geez, six hours of wrestling on Saturday night. It's a local station in Atlanta. We had tapes from Puerto Rico, from Japan. We had WWE's tape. We had so many different shows that we would do leads to and pitch to those. So I remember one time they wanted me to go down and do a little special when WWF came to town. So I was backstage and actually took my roommate with me to be my grip and I was running camera and I I can do camera to this day. So we went down there and I remember seeing Andre the Giant, you know, like 10 feet away. Right. And he was peeking through the curtains to watch the other matches. And and then I saw Hogan because he was wrestling him that night. And I just remember like Coco Beware and Macho Man Randy Savage, who I talked to later and became and had a pretty good relationship with him. So it was kind of neat to know those names, those big names and see them. But then to have Hogan actually come work with us, it was a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad he did. And I have a lot of fond memories work with Hogan. He knew what he was doing. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, his knowledge as, as a businessman and someone who can maneuver through the wrestling industry might be unparalleled outside of, you know, say a Vince McMahon type brain. You're right. I remember one time we were in Chicago and did a video on him and some of the autograph signings and stuff like that. We do a package every now and then. Chicago was obviously a big town for us. It was a tough one to get into. And I believe we had to wrestle at the Rosemont Horizon. Vince would inevitably pick big towns and he would lock us out of them. So we wouldn't be able to get like in the Madison Square Garden and things like that. Or the Boston Garden. Sure, sure. Smart businessman, you know. He knew what he, he knew who he was up to and <laughs> locked us out at every corner, which I don't blame him. So Hogan and I are there. The cameraman had gone back already. And I was going somewhere else. I can't remember where I was going. So my flight was later. So 
I just said, you know, no problem. I'll just ride back with, with Hogan to the hotel. So Hulk was signing autographs, and I'm, say, I'm serious. It was probably two and a half blocks long, city blocks now, four people wide, and they all wanted his autograph. Hmm. So he was signing. He was supposed to sign for like an hour and a half. So he signs for an hour and a half. Well, just before an hour and a half, they usually come up to the guys and say, hey, you know, you got 15 more minutes, no big deal. And the limo's out there waiting for you. And we'll take you to the airport. Because your flight's, you know, I don't know what time. So he goes, no problem. He says, there's still people out there? Yeah. So they come up to him and, you know, the hour and a half's over with. And they go, okay, Hawk, you know, thanks for coming by. He goes, well, is there more people out there? And they said, yeah, there's a lot of more. There's a lot more people. He said, no problem. I'll keep on signing. I think two hours went by. He's still signing. Oh, wow. There's still people out there. They'd come up to him at least twice and said, Hawk, if you don't go right now, you're going to miss your flight. And it's the last one out. And you're not going to be able to, you know, go back to Tampa tonight. He goes, is there still people out there? They said, yeah. He goes, no problem, brother. Kept on signing. Wow. So then past the window of being able to go back home that night, he looked around and usually all the employees, you know, they don't get autographs and stuff like that. He goes, is there anybody in here that works here that wants an autograph too? And, you know, many of them came up. There's probably 20. So they all got their autographs. He goes, we good? Anybody else? All right, I just want to thank you all for coming out. He walked out. We were in a limousine going back to the hotel, just he and, he and myself in the back. And I said, Hulk, I just want to tell you, I just wanted to thank you for taking all that time to sign those autographs and just be a true professional about what I think it is to be a professional wrestler. He goes, brother, I haven't passed up an autograph in 15 years, and I ain't about to do it now. I was like, well, that's why you're the man. That's kind of especially incredible when you consider, um, you know, the, the specifically the town of Chicago. In uh, Hogan's kind of early run in WCW was, was one of the towns that was a little rough on him, um, you know, where he would get a little more booze than you'd see if he were in, um, you know, like kind of the Northeast where he was still warmly received as a popular good guy. Um, so it's, you know, it's very, it's well, they could get, they could get booze in any town. <laughs> That's just a joke there, sir. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he wasn't afraid of that. When he first joins, um, he's kind of starts off a feud right away with, uh, Kevin Sullivan. It's a group that calls uh, three faces of fear, but kind of quickly molds into the dungeon of doom. And the Dungeon of Doom and Hulk both kind of square off in a series of extremely memorable uh, backstage segments that are kind of featured inside the dungeon. Okay, let me stop you right here. <laughs> I had absolutely, positively, nothing whatsoever to do with the Dungeon of Doom. Oh, that's a real disappointment. I was hoping for some inside scoop. Clarify that for all of your people. So, well, I, I do remember kind of reading at the but, time... On Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, we're going to interview that guy. Oh, really? Okay. Because those were shot at a soundstage near 
those were shot near Hogan's home. Is that right? Is that why it was kind of a different crew that that ran those, or was it just a different WCW employee who got kind of drew the short end of the stick that week? Well, we had a very talented guy that he could do anything. He did really great work with the spin the wheel, make the deal video with Sting and with um, with uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. So he was able to do about anything. Mm-hmm. So he kind of got the short end of the stick on this one, and. Yes, it was uh, time to just go down in Tampa and sweat like dogs in this warehouse somewhere and watch uh, King Curtis sit for hours on end in that chair. Hogan, I tell you. <laughs> I don't know if you remember seeing it at all. Oh, we remember. We remember. If you saw it once, you probably didn't want to see it twice. <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't want to. It was, I don't know, it was kind of an embarrassment. <laughs> well, I, you know, one thing you can say about those segments they're not poorly produced. I mean, it's it's goofy and it's over the top, but I wouldn't say the production is is lacking on those videos. Oh, they spent some serious money on it, you know, just like the the glacier thing and the sting bat thing. I mean, some people were lucky to get budgets. I wasn't so lucky. I was one of those, but I always admired the fact that they were able to get them. <laughs> I wish I had got some of that money sometimes. <laughs> so it's during that program with the Dungeon of Doom where. Nitro finally debuts. It's uh, September of 1995. Is there, uh, what's the feeling kind of amongst the production crew of suddenly having an additional hour of live television that needs to be produced every week? Is that exciting? Is that uh, just frustrating and more work? Or kind of what was the feeling on that? I think we're super excited. I mean, we're able to capture, I mean, prime time. You know, that was a pretty big deal. So I remember going up to Minnesota and the Mall of America, and I think I have a photograph maybe of us all sitting out there by the truck just getting ready for it, and we were fired up. We had people that just wanted to work, you know? We had people that busted their butt all the time. They enjoyed what they did. They knew it was going to add yet another day to their paycheck. I mean, everybody was happy. I don't know about some of the upper management as far as, you know, knowing that they're needing to add more people or not. We really... Always worked on somewhat of a skeleton crew, which was frustrating and fun at the same time because you had to wear so many hats and do so many different things. But I think it was very exciting that we got to, you know, just uh, really show what we had to offer, you know, other than just on TBS or just on Saturday morning television or worldwide or syndicated program. So, yeah, it was really nice. That's fun. So now you guys have Hulk Hogan. You've got a primetime weekly show. And pretty soon, you're exchanging ratings victories week in and week out with the WWF and really showing that WCW could be a viable alternative uh, to WWF's program. Was there a feeling that was kind of noticeable backstage that there was really a culture change? Or, you know, was it really everyone feeling this level of success? Or did it kind of sneak up on everyone and one of those things where you don't really realize it until you're reflecting back afterward? Another great question. I think we had we had a feeling that it was all going pretty well. I mean, I thought we came up with some really good ideas. I mean, the production got bumped up a little bit as far as us going to various venues and Probably a little bit more lighting budget, a little more pyro budget. Um, so that helped a lot. And it wasn't just your, you know, couple of lights over the ring 
and walking out in black trunks and nothing but just uh, you walking out through the crowd. I mean, it had really come a long ways if you just kind of look at the days of maybe before 1990 when I came on. They were starting to get exciting, and they had uh, the pay-per-view events obviously really brought wrestling up, I thought, as far as being on the cutting edge of technology. That was the cool thing about wrestling in general. Mm-hmm. We always kind of stayed on the cutting edge, whether it be the pyro or the big monitor walls or a lot of the great sets that Rick Morganelli worked on with us. I mean, we really did feel that we were riding a wave that was going pretty well. I think definitely success was in the future for us. We felt it. So then coming into Bash of the Beach 1996, this is, of course, the show where we, the outsiders, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, have been invading Nitro. We get up to Bash of the Beach. We want to find out who their third man is. And, of course, at the end of the show, it's revealed that it's Hulk Hogan. It's the formation of the NWO. Uh, at what point, working on the show, at what point do you become aware that Hulk Hogan is is being revealed as the third man? Well, I think between Hulk Hogan, after Holland Nash, since I produced the NWO segments, I obviously was one of the first to know because we did we did those down in Disney. I remember the stage. I remember where we're at. I remember how we felt about the whole project. And it was pretty awesome to be part of history with that. So before Hogan even walks out at Bash of the Beach 96, you you knew that he was going to be the third person? You know, that's, that's a good question because I don't remember exactly when I knew other than when I had to do the... Yeah, um, I don't think I knew at the time, no. Because you're talking about uh, that was in Orlando, correct? Right, yeah. So Bash of the Beach happens in July, and then the very next week is the first week uh, that you guys are at Disney for about, I believe, a five-week period. Yeah, yeah. So when Hogan did come out as the third man and got booed in the ring and all that, which was probably one of the highlights of seeing something that serious in my career, that was great. I was in the truck at the time, so... I was the assistant director for a lot of the pay-per-views, so I didn't even know. Um, just a few did. I know my uh, director, my boss, Craig Leathers, he kind of hinted around that something big was going to happen, but I think he just kept it a secret from everybody. So my guess is Eric Bischoff, Rick, uh, Rick Flair probably knew, um, Probably Keith Mitchell. Yeah, Keith Mitchell, Craig Leathers, Eric Bischoff. And that's probably about it. You know, obviously Holland Nash and probably Kevin Sullivan. Sure. Sorry about my dogs. They're kind of getting a little bit crazy right now. <laughs> they haven't seen me in a while. <laughs> oh, that's, that's just fine. But yeah, that, that's probably all that new, really. You started to talk about the uh, NWO promos, which just started a few weeks after Bash of the Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, these are, of course, the iconic black and white sort of um, 
sort of music video style editing with a lot of quick cuts, uh, a lot of filming where you're kind of showing the backstage elements and really felt different from anything that had been seen in wrestling before. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the idea for that come about and, and sort of what was the, who was the team that put that together? Thanks for asking. It was something that definitely changed my life. So I was the producer of the majority of the segments, all of them at the beginning. But then, you know, once you get something up and running, it kind of uh, melds into something else. But it was fun to be able to brand something like that, where it was a big ripoff, though. Like any art, um, there's elements that it took from a lot of different places. One being, I think it was Paul Mitchell. They actually had hair products. Oh, sure. They had a real nice look for um, minimalistic lighting and very contrasty type stuff. That's kind of where the look of the set came from. And then I always liked the um, lights. We, we used them for a little while, the NWO going across their body and things like that. Just something totally different. And I, having been in wrestling before, working at the local level with Deep South Wrestling and Superstars of Wrestling and some of those programs. One thing that I know people wanted to see, and Arn Anderson said it was probably the most interesting thing of wrestling, was what goes on behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I just thought it would be interesting to find out what the fans' reaction was to feel as if they're inside the interview. It's probably one of the most innovative things I did in that whole thing. I was lucky enough to have a great crew with Kemper Rogers, who was an amazing editor. He was the one that did all those roles and helped with the, you know, putting on the film look over top of the video and just all that click, clicking noises and things like that. He was the one that really made it look so much different. But I was in charge of kind of what they said and how he went about the production of it all. And I just felt I just wanted to give them my camera to Scott Hall and say, Scott, you know, just pass the camera around. You know, you guys roll and just videotape each other, you know. And I think it gave a perspective so up close and personal that it was very attractive to fans that were used to seeing two people, one holding a mic, just pointing it in the other guy's face. It just brought you really inside that whole interview. And I think it almost to an emotional level for some people made them even closer to the wrestlers. And I think that's one of the parts of the product that I thought really worked the best and was the most successful and people enjoyed the most, really, seeing that up-close and personal view of them. It's really a fascinating transition because we start getting those which feel um, very much of the moment in terms of, you know, 1996 and kind of they feel very modern considering that place and time. And they're coming on the same show where WCW is still presenting the Dungeon of Doom with characters like the Leprechaun. And it's so it's this interesting transitional period where where WCW has a lot of the old uh, aspects of wrestling, but there's these packages for this, you know, this NWO group, and they're just dragging the entire company into, you know, sort of the modern era. And it's it's been really a fun, fun period to watch because of that. Oh, thank you. I, by the way, the Leprechaun is a great guy. <laughs> 
uh, Buddy Lee Parker, right? He he was a Love trainer after that. Buddy Lee Parker. Yeah. yeah, he trained Goldberg with the minimal time he had with him, and yeah, great guy and really great worker. You know, do anything for you. Just the nicest person in the world. I've known him for many many years. I think I knew him before I ever got to WCW. Oh, really? Yeah, good good guy. Yeah, but yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Um, I think a lot of it was Kevin Sullivan trying to experiment and get some things in there. And, you know, he was part of the NWO origination of it all. Um, I talked to him a little bit when I was in Orlando for actually my very first WrestleCon. I had never been to one of them. Uh, that many years in the business, you think I'd have been to several of them because I actually did work with WWE and helped train people like The Miz and uh, the great Kali and, Jack Swagger and several others, MVP and people like that. But yeah, it was a great time. Good to get on there for a couple of days and see so many of my great friends. Uh, saying hello to Booker T and talking to him and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, people like that. It was a blast. Seeing Tony Schiavone down there again, who I hadn't seen in a while. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> Crazy business. Now, speaking of crazy business, uh, I think one of the, the event that we're talking about next in terms of our timeline for my show uh, is one of the craziest events I think WCW ever put on. And that is hog wild, uh, which of <laughs> course was later renamed road wild mm -hmm. due to some copyright issues. But these are the live shows, live pay-per-views from the Sturgis motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota. Uh, now, were you at these pay-per-views? Well, definitely. I did the open with Kemper Rogers and we stayed up all night in a trailer editing that thing together. So we went through hours and hours of crazy footage that we'd never be able to show on TV. <laughs> but uh, it was an adventure for sure. I'll never forget it as long as I live. We almost got blown over by like a tornado. It was crazy. <laughs> that was the Friday before the show. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, risk, risking our lives for wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a trip. I was surprised, though. At Surges, it wasn't much... Uh, there wasn't as much fighting or anything like that. I'm not a really a biker person. My dad had a Harley when I, before he, he ever had us kids. But I thought that, you know, they would be kind of a drunken brawl type place. And I guess we're a bit nervous about going there, not knowing really what could happen around the ring. And everybody sitting on their motorcycles and having possibly, you know, been filled up with liquor all day long. So... I think we're a little bit nervous about the whole situation. Um, I remember one of the meetings we had before we sent all the camera people out. So we, I believe we sent probably four cameras and they just kind of roamed and got whatever they thought would be good for an open. And they said, okay, see that bar over there? And then that one right across the street? They said, first of all, don't take your camera anywhere near there. <laughs> don't even point it in that direction. He said, one of them is the Hells Angels and the other is the Banditos. So half these people are probably on the lamb. So it's not a good idea to be taking your cameras around there. We're like, wow, no problem. You won't see us anywhere near there. <laughs> no big deal. It was a, it was an adventure. There were so many unusual bikes and just people just letting it all hang out. And it was definitely something, if you're a bike enthusiast at all, you definitely need to do it once. Because it was very interesting, and the people were cool. I mean, they were they were cool to us. But like I said, we were a little bit nervous about what was going to happen around the ring. 
especially, you know, if they had bottles or whatever. We don't know. Shoot. Um, we did have to control that area, of course. And the security people, they were really on high alert. I remember that. Because they could have really made a spectacle out of themselves if they wanted to, but they didn't. They were a great crowd. That's why we went back a couple times. Generally, it feels like the crowd uh, overall, it never really gets to kind of an uncomfortable or, or dangerous atmosphere, with the possible exception of Harlem Heat, who I think rubbed rubbed some people in the crowd the wrong way. And it, it kind of feels at times during the Harlem Heat match like things are going to tip over there. But uh, I think, you know, Booker and Stevie are, are professionals and they know how to get the right amount of heat without driving the point home too much. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I, I would agree. I think it, you know, it doesn't seem like uh, anything over the top when you're watching it. Yeah, they were two of the best at it. Um, I remember when Harlem Heat first came in and we are sitting around the pool at Disney. The, when we were doing like the TV tapings and I was just kind of trying to help them out, you know, as young guys getting into our part of the business. I mean, they had already had a pretty successful run in Dallas and came over to see us and followed like people like Stone Cold Steve Austin, Stunning Steve Austin at the time. Several other people that come from Dallas. So they were exceptional people that wanted to learn, you know, right away. Booker T and Stevie Ray, both of them, they really just, they were ears wide open, you know. Mm. They wanted to hear what they could to perfect their part of the business and obviously very successful people still to this day. Steve Ray's got a funny podcast too, if you ever get a chance to see it. Yeah, we, uh, just in our most recent episode, we both, we kind of plugged his show because we think it, he's, he's great to listen to. He's got a lot of fun insights. Yeah. It's always great to see Booker T. He's still the same. Great person. And Charmel, his wife, two great people, three great people. Now, are there, when it comes to producing Hog Wild, are there unique challenges um, from a production standpoint of, you know, you're used to going into an arena Monday morning and loading up and doing the show. Mm-hmm. Here you're putting on a show essentially in a gravel parking lot outside. What are some of the challenges that come up with doing it with doing an outdoor show like that? Well, challenges are things like trusses, lighting trusses, for instance. And they weigh a whole lot. And you might, you know, we're usually, we have chains that hang from the top of the arenas. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of built for that, you know, uh, hanging, hanging from that high of, and they, they then have to be balanced out to perfection so nothing goes wrong. And they're exactly level when you see them in the arenas. But you kind of got to put them on scaffolding a little bit when you're out in, the, you know, like you said, the gravel parking lot. And the foundation that goes underneath it, you got to be very careful. And, you know, obviously safety is paramount. So that's a big challenge. That's really a great observation on your part that it changed a whole lot. Um, Some of the barriers that, you know, people are used to were there, but these guys had motorcycles, you know, that's, that's another challenge. What happens if, for whatever reason, they decide to run into these things, who knows? And, Getting the wrestlers from a reasonable area to be able to actually walk to the ring. That's another challenge. So you just don't have a gymnasium or something in locker rooms you get ready in. Sometimes sometimes right. in the backs of these arenas, 
they're set up for people, you know, like rock bands coming in or big theater production companies. They have many, many dressing rooms. So now you have a bunch of trailers that people are in, basically. And you got to get them to the ring on time and be ready for the next match. Or if there's a run-in, you have to have them there. So there were people that the only thing they did was drive golf carts to drive the wrestlers from where they were able to get ready at to up towards the ring where you kind of couldn't see them, you know. You kind of got to block the crowd off from seeing who's coming up next or who's getting ready to come out. Because part of the mystique of it is not knowing who's coming through the curtain next until you hear their music. And even if you hear their music, it might be somebody different. Mm -hmm. So kind of that little tunnel area that you have to have and you have to kind of keep that a secret. So that's another challenge. You're dealing with the elements. You never know until the show starts going off as to whether you're going to be able to actually even do the show because of weather. I remember we were in Charlotte, North Carolina one time. David Crockett's hometown. He set it up. We wrestled right downtown Charlotte. It was really a cool venue. Charlotte's a beautiful town. It's a really nice place to go. Absolutely. I, I love Charlotte. Yeah. It's Queen City. Being there, we were all really kind of feeling really good about it because, you know, Crockett Promotions had had NWA, which was eventually WCW before Ted Turner bought it. So everybody was glad to be there. There's a lot of people that were going back home, even like Dusty Rhodes, Tony Schiavone, uh, Ricky Steamboat was living there still at the time. I believe Rick Flair was still there for sure. So it was a, it was a great thing. Every time we went to Charlotte, we really enjoyed ourselves. Well, it started to rain and it became dangerous. The ring is, it's tough to maneuver in as, you know, when it's dry, let alone when it starts to get a little slick. Right. So any kind of weather that would have come in and you know like you said just the friday beforehand it was a real mess i mean the wind was blowing like crazy there's dust everywhere it's really a place that can get nasty quick and we were concerned about that so it was a ballsy move to be able to go out in the middle of the like you said gravel parking lot sorry about my voice i'm just having a little bit of problem with uh, some laryngitis here after coming back to the South. <laughs> oh, that's that's quite all right. You know, and it's good thing you mentioned your voice because I, I realize now that we walked through the, you know, the creation of the NWO video packages and we didn't really even hit on, uh, I think, your most important or at least iconic role in those videos. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it on our show before and we've said that you were the voice of the new world order, but, mm -hmm. uh, for everyone listening, could you maybe just give us, of course, your, your famous line here on our show? Sorry, I probably can't do it as good as normal, but I'll try. This podcast is not sanctioned by the new world order. There you go. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> We are going to definitely isolate that and use that at the beginning of all of our episodes, I think, from now on. Very good. I'm sure I'll make as much money off of you as I did off of wrestling. <laughs> it was very convenient to have me as the uh, the voice of the NWO because I could get myself at any time and never complained about doing things over again. And that's kind of part of the reason why I got to be able to do the NWO voice. Craig Leather said, what does it sound like? What do you want it to sound like? So there was this guy at 99X in Atlanta. He would go, 99X. It was real raspy. 
real whispery like. And my voice is kind of naturally like that anyway. So I told Craig, I said, it sounded like this. N-W-O. Something like that. Or New World Order. Or whatever I said. He goes, why don't you do it? I said, okay, I will. <laughs> so that's how I got to do the voice. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because you uh, talk about it, in, you know, from being inspired from a radio station, because it is another thing that I think feels very, again, 1996. It feels like the the voice you'd hear on sort of an alternative rock station where they'd play like Nirvana and that kind of music yeah. at the time, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's what it was. Yeah. 99X, anybody that was here in Atlanta, actually Jimmy Barron, who was kind of did some backstage stuff for us. He was one of the DJs on that station. And man, I be I just really loved that station and some of the stuff that they did with it. I was on the radio in college for four years, and that's part of how I was trying to build my resume so I could come down to the South and work for Ted Turner eventually. And it was fun to be able to actually use some of those skills, you know, to do promotions and brand a what's an iconic now, an iconic part of wrestling it's a big honor and it definitely changed my life and has changed my career for sure it's been a wonderful experience so you've recently kind of re-entered the uh the wrestling world with your podcast neil pruitt secrets of wcw nitro how did that come about what what made you get into the podcasting game well there's a gifted writer from new york city his name's guy evans and he wrote the incredible rise and inevitable collapse of ted turner's wcw and he called me up after he talked to Jason Douglas, who was still a great friend of mine and was an awesome producer back in the day with us. And he interviewed me for probably an hour and a half about some of my thoughts about the business and about wrestling. And I really hadn't talked about it all a lot. But he said there was really a lot of interest still, you know, for people that want to find out about how it all went down and what the whole business is all about and the rise and fall and everything else going up against, you know, Vince McMahon, the best in the world at it. And I really didn't think a whole lot about it, but then he said, if you think of any stories, you know, why don't you just make a little recording of it and send it to me? So one of the highlights of my career is, we actually got to rent out Alcatraz and we videotaped Roddy Piper in Alcatraz, escaping Alcatraz. Oh, sure. I Yeah, I remember those segments. Well, thank you. They were a whole lot of fun. And I mean, a place like Alcatraz is worldwide known. Just the boat alone was $1,000 an hour. Wow. So we had to really utilize our time as best as possible and make it to where Piper was comfortable with it all and being able to work with somebody who was so intense like that and had his character honed so well, it was a real privilege for that. So I told him that whole story, how he had to shoot it backwards and how he had to wait till all the people got off the island before we ever started shooting on it. And that whole story, and he said, man, you know what? Because you're a good storyteller, dude. You need to, we need to get some of this on, on tape, you know. We need to record some of this, you know. Maybe even think about doing a podcast. So, I don't know, I wasn't all that keen on it at the beginning, but he kept talking to me about it, and then I asked some of my friends, you know, about what they thought, and should I do it, and 
then I thought, you know what? I think I do have a lot of information that maybe a young producer could learn off of me and some of the insights people might be interested in that even though it happened many years ago, it's still relevant today and as far as how you do things in the video business. So I figured I could give back a little bit and have fun at the same time, and that's what I'm doing on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. So thank you, Guy, WCWNitroBook.com. And um, order his book because it's going to come out in March. You definitely got to read it. I've been able to get a couple chapters out of him and, you know, say, Guy, come on, you got to give me something. And being able to read some of the insight, wow, he got to speak to so many of the people that I would have loved to have spoken to back in the day. Some of the biggest wigs there were at Turner and Time Warner and AOL. And wow, he gives you a totally different perspective about how it all went down. I mean, I was involved with all of it, but didn't know half of the stuff he talks about in the book. So it's going to be great. I can't wait to read it. Well, uh, I absolutely really I enjoy the podcast you guys have. Uh, you know, a lot of, I think, personalities from from wrestling, especially that kind of Monday Night Wars era, as they call it have come back with podcasts recently. Certainly Eric Bischoff had one. I think it's on a hiatus right now, but Stevie Ray has one. I know Booker T has a podcast, um, but yours is really unique in sort of the landscape of that because rather than being a fan podcast or an on-screen talent podcast, you're giving us everything from a production standpoint, and that really sets it apart, and it's been really uh, a fun to listen to. So uh, thank you for, for coming back and starting that show. Yeah, Tim, we really enjoy listening to you at 20 years of Nitro. You guys do a lot of great work, you know, going over each and every match and seeing, you know, how you'd have done it differently and probably have some better ideas than we had at the time. So it's fun to listen to your stuff as well. And thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's very honored. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Neil. Have a good evening. You too. Thanks. So that's it. That's the end of our interview, the end of our bonus episode. I'm going to get back to repairing Hogwild 1996. Dave and I are recording that soon. Um, but I do want to make sure that you guys check out uh, Neil's podcast. We mentioned it at the show, but again, it is uh, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. Uh, it's just a really fun show, and they're going to be doing some very cool stuff soon. Sort of similar to what we do, where they go through an episode, except for uh, they're going to go through an episode kind of moment by moment, and Neil's going to take you through the production elements of that episode. I know for me... Uh, who loves to do research and look at every little nook and cranny. Uh, it's just going to be a tremendous resource. Uh, and they're doing it kind of a cool way where you can actually get the script or the, the format, the run sheet for that episode. Um, I believe they put that up on their, their Twitter uh, or website. But you can check them out on Twitter. Again, it's Secrets of WCW Nitro, or Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro is the name of the podcast. Go ahead and follow him on Twitter. Uh, again, his co-host uh, wrote a book. You can check that out at WCW Nitro Book. Dot com and get your pre-order now uh, and you can also hire neil for all your freelance video needs at georgiavideoproducer.com uh, so with all those plugs out of the way i hope you enjoyed the interview as much as i did it was just a real privilege and an honor to have neil on and we're looking forward to talking to you soon uh, about hog wild 1996 right here where the big boys play 20 years of nitro